say hombre, hold another bottle. Look a little closer, cigar in Moscato. An actor in improv, coming from Chicago. Alto, make way for Paul Vato. Hello, everyone. My name is Paul Vato, and this is Paul Vato Presents. We have a very special guest today, and his name is Ray Buffer, who's an actor, a, a voice uh, artist, a voiceover artist, uh, and a singer. Uh, has a beautiful voice. So thank you, folks, for joining us. <laughs> thank you, folks, for joining us. We are live on Fireside. If you want to join us here, where as you can see the video. If not, this will be uh, uploaded to my regular uh, podcasting platforms, which is pretty much all of them. So, Ray, thank you so much for taking time from your busy weekend and coming to see us. Thanks a lot for being here, Ray. My pleasure. Thank you for your patience through my tech, my technical foibles. It was it was nothing. This is a newer platform. So, uh, you know, I've had people go like, oh, my God, I didn't even realize we were going to be on camera. So this is perfect. This was one of the least painful uh, experiences. So thank you for, for making it pleasant and easy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm I'm in my light now. Yeah, wherever you're comfortable, it looks great. The the, the camera adjusts and and, and it looks uh, it looks great. However, whatever you, makes you comfortable. Um, so welcome, Ray. Talking, and uh, what's I'm that? I'm going to play host to you. How's your day going? The, my, you know what? This is wonderful. Thank you for asking. Uh, my day uh, so far, somewhat uneventful, which is always nice because I'm in Las Vegas. So any day that's that's not uh, too crazy is always good. Uh, I've recovered fully from Cinco de Mayo, which is uh, a you know Mexican high holy day. So, yeah. uh, but nothing nothing too exciting happened. It was kind of low key. Uh, I've been trying to not be around a lot of people, uh, but other than that, it's it's been uh, a, a great day. It's it's warming up in Vegas, getting up to the eighties and nineties now. Oh yeah, Vegas. Um, you know, when I first moved to California, Vegas was one of those places that I, I had to visit as a tourist, and I was just shocked. Just the, the stifling 105 degree heat, you know, dry heat coming from Florida. I was like, oh my God, I, I don't know how people tolerate this, how they live, but I guess you get used to it, right? Like anything. Right. Just like anything, because, because Florida is no slouch when it comes to heat, but it's, it's more humid. I mean, well, it's humid as opposed to Vegas, where I get it. People are like, it's a dry heat. And I'm like, well, an oven is a dry heat, and I don't want to be in there. I mean, it's right. it's uh, it'll hit 120. I've I've been around when it hits hit 120. Um, now I've had people come into because uh, I had a cigar store inside Binion's Casino for for about 10 years and uh, or, or a little bit longer. And I I remember one customer specifically. I was like, oh man, it's a killer out there. It's like 120. And uh, he, he was like, oh, it's not that bad. I'm like, well, where are you from? He goes, uh, Arizona. I was like, oh okay, all right. Because he was like, yeah, it was like 124 when I left. So I was like, okay. So, but it's bad. I remember driving from uh, when I lived in LA, uh, we would make, of course, our yearly trek to Vegas. But one year I actually came 12 times. And it just so happened every couple of weeks, there would be somebody going like, it felt like every couple of weeks. Hey, uh, you know, my friend Rich Tellerico was directing Martin Short in a show in Vegas. He's like, buddy, I got to go out there anyways. You want to go? I'm like, sure. You know, and then you get back and then, uh, you know, two weeks later or a month later, somebody would be like, hey, we're doing a Vegas trip. You want to go? And, and you know, the, like the Matt TV folks and whatnot. And uh, 
And I remember we're driving and, and we're in his, I think he had a Toyota RAV4. We're driving from, from, and we see that the world's largest thermometer. And it said like, like 112 or so, it was something crazy. And he looks at me, he's like, it can't be that hot, can it? We <laughs> roll the windows down and man, it was just like an oven. We're like, yeah, yes, it is. Roll it back up. Like a, like someone took a hair dryer on on the most extreme hot setting and blew it at you, right? Right in your face. Yeah, it was that was exactly it. With just air blowing right in your face, like from a hot air dryer, it could not have been described better, Ray. That's exactly yeah, that's exactly the way it was. Florida, the thing about Florida is, you know, you get like the sweat layer. You know, it's like your natural your natural biological air conditioner kicks in. And you create like this sweat layer that just follows you throughout the day. So once once you once you pop that sweat in Florida, you're 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 one with the humidity around you. It's like you, you just symbiotically blend into your surroundings. So you don't notice the humidity once you break that sweat layer. I'm from Chicago originally, and of course we go from one extreme, the extreme of winter to summer. And I don't think it's not as hot as Florida, but the humidity can also get pretty, pretty, you know, I, and I run hot as it is. I, I, I apologize as soon as I get on somebody's set and wardrobe, you know, makeup starts working on me. I'm like, Hey, you know, give me some tissues, you know, give me the little wax paper. I'll make sure I take care of myself. Go, oh no, no, we'll take care of it. By the end, they're like, yeah, here you go. Because you know, it's yeah, the yeah, lights. Take care of you. Take care. <laughs> they're like, take the whole thing. Um, so, so I, I understand, but uh, and I'm in the cigar business, so so I've been to Florida often, and also like Cuba and whatnot. So that humidity, it's man, it um, it can be draining for me. It's like at least for the first few days, like why? Oh my goodness, like I, I'm just uh, I'm drained. But uh, but you're right. Once it builds up that layer, it's kind of it, it's cooling. I guess it, I guess that's the the reason for for our sweat to give off the heat. Yeah, that reminds me of a story. I'm, I'm... One of the first movie sets I ever worked on, it was as a background extra. But I was in Florida when I was in my early 20s. It was Ace Ventura, Pet Detective with, with Jim Carrey. And I, I know, I'm sure that he didn't mean anything by it, but, you know, there's a scene with him in the pink tutu and the white undershirt. And they, were, they kept doing this scene over and over again. And between shots, his armpits would get very, very damp. And so there was a girl who was assigned to, like, you know, damp, <laughs> dry him off between takes. And I think he, you know, in a very Jim Carrey way, it was like, where's my armpit girl? Where is she? Where's my... And the poor girl was in tears. And I don't think he, he even realized it, but it was just one of those things, you know, the movie magic and and the dichotomy between comedy and real life and weather. It's just, uh, it's an interesting, it, it's just an interesting moment in time that, that, for some reason, that story sticks in my mind. And, and, and that is funny. And you're right. I think uh, I think he probably saw the humor in it, and he's in no, you know, disparaging her. But it is funny to go, "Where's my armpit, girl?" Because that's what she's doing. Yeah. I mean, so now I don't feel so bad when people come and have to wipe my my filthy, my sweaty right. face. You know, there I mean, hey, whoops. <laughs> I just wanted to make you feel better. That that was the whole purpose. Thank you. You do seem like that, like that kind of a person, Ray. So thank you very much for being that way. And so speaking of Florida, that's where you grew up. You, it's my understanding you grew up in Florida, um, and that's where you found your love of acting. Was it at an early age? You want to touch on 
maybe growing up a little bit, your parents, did they have an influence on you? Yeah, I mean, all of that. I mean, I, I'm adopted, and, um, you know, I was the star of their lives. You know, they, they the thing about adoption is when someone adopts you, they really, really want you. You know, it's not a... <laughs> It's not a matter of oh well, you know we weren't planning you, but we're gonna we're gonna raise you and you know be happy with this this change in our lives. I mean, uh, I think there's a syndrome that adoptees have where they feel rejected, relinqu you know from the relinquishment of their birth mother. But equal to that, I think I felt immensely loved because I was adopted by two people who really really wanted me and. Um, so I think, you know, there's a balancing issue that happens there. And I think, I think somewhere in the site, the, the psychology of that, I was like bolstered in my, my desire to enter into entertainment. Um, you know, I, I, I got applause when I was the class clown. I got, you know, some degree of notoriety, you know, or attention um, when I, when I, did things that other people didn't have the confidence to do. And that just kind of like boosted me more and more forward into that kind of life. And uh, I think music is what started it, uh, playing the violin and singing. And then that led to musical theater, which then led to theater and TV and film. So there's a progression in which I discovered things and kind of fell Amazing. I, I, lo I love what you said that because uh, I, 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 you know, you're right. Uh, I, I believe, you know, adopted kids sometimes, you know, it's like, why didn't somebody want me? But then the opposite is so true. And I hope that you keep spreading that message and maybe you do, which is it's quite the opposite. Like you, 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 <laughs> you know, my parents didn't have a choice. They had to, they had to have me and keep me I'm guessing. And uh, wh whereas your parents sought you out and found you and raised you. So there's that much more. Uh, love yeah. there, I guess. But w what an amazing way to look at it, and something that I had never really even thought of. Um, no, it can be a pressure too. I was I was an only child, and you know there were there were some things that went into um, them raising me. You know, when when you adopt a child, you're also always afraid. You're always looking over your shoulder that someone's going to take take the kid back. If so, you know, I couldn't get in trouble. You know, I, I couldn't uh, drive my bicycle off of the block. I couldn't go on school trips unless they chaperone, you know, so there's an overprotective aspect of it too, because it's like, you know, they wanted me so much. They also want to make sure they keep me, you know, and so sure. there's there, that kind of spills into the experience. That Wow. Yeah. Yes. I, I would imagine that they were somewhat overprotective and maybe overbearing. And you answered my next question, which was if you have, if you have siblings, uh, and I know that you you tracked down was it your biological mother? And do you want to touch on that and talk about that experience? Yeah, I mean, I was always curious growing up, and I always knew that I was adopted growing up. So, you know, my parents didn't discourage me. Um, but Florida is a, is a um, what do you call it? Like a sealed records, closed records state. So you can't just go knock on the door of public records and get your, your, your adoption papers. Um, I basically hired a, a private investigation company in the early 2000s 
And um, after a few years, I heard from them, and um, they had, through whatever whatever methods they used, they had actually acquired the original record. So it named my birth mother and her siblings and some of her uh, her parental information, you know, her parents, um, and her interview at the time of the, the relinquishment. So, you know, I had all this information I could read first and research, and then I decided, well, rather than fly to Florida, which is, you know, she actually is 50 miles away from where I actually was brought up and raised, so, you know, who knows? if I actually walked by her at some point in my life and didn't even realize who she was. But um, rather than fly out there and knock on her door first, I decided to go to her eldest sister who lived here in California in uh, North Hollywood at the time. So I went to her house with yellow roses and knocked on her door and said, um, we don't know each other, but um, you know, I, I, I'm related to your sister and um, I was born in such and such year, and um, and then her eyes just opened up, and she realized, oh, you know, she knew something had gone on with her sister back then, but didn't know what it was. And now all the pieces of the puzzle were clicking together for her, and of course she welcomed me in, and you know, we sat down, we talked for about three or four hours, and she kind of gave me the lay of the land, like here's what, here's where the family's from, here's what happened to them, here's where they are now. Um, and she agreed to keep keep a secret our meeting until I actually went out and met my mother. So that was very kind of her. So um, so I did. And about three months later, I flew out to Florida, did the same thing, met my birth mother. Um, I think the the biggest takeaway I had from the meeting is that she hugged me, she thanked me for finding her because I think for a lot of birth mothers, it's true that. You know, they have so many factors in their lives surrounding them, encouraging them to forget, encouraging them to move on with their lives and, and just turn the page. And I was the page that got turned. Um, but in the back of her mind, there was guilt. There was, there was sadness. There were feelings. There were unresolved. You know, there was, there was a need for closure. And I think that uh, my knocking on her door gave her that. And, you know, we're friends today. We, we, we're I, I don't call her mom. I don't call any of my birth family by their relationship identity. They're just an expanded network of friends. But it's nice through that association to know more about at least the maternal side of my family, which I knew nothing of until that point. Did you uh, did you call her first or did you uh, show up at her door with, with flowers? Really? Yeah. I, and in fact, I said, uh, you and I, um, we haven't seen each other since September 2nd, 1969. And, and her and jaw she... just dropped. And I was wow. prepared to catch her, too, because I thought, well, maybe she might faint. But, um, but no, she was, she was, she was pretty, um, she, she took it, she took it in stride. Um, but she just, after that, she said, can I hug you? And that's when we hugged. Amazing, amazing, and, and and you're a you're a tall fella. What, was she was she taller or is she a, a smaller lady? And I, I don't know what she, asking, but... she was average height. I think she's about five five, five six, five seven, somewhere okay. in that area. Uh, I think my height may come from either my paternal side or a mixture of that and her father. Um, 
because one of the cool things, and you know, I might over-dramatize this a little bit, um, but one of the interesting things is that when I saw pictures of her father, he looked just like me at the same age. But I was knocking on her door at 32 years of age, and she had lost her father when he was 32. And here was a family of sisters who had very little to talk about and had not really spoken to one another in, in, in years. And because I was making the rounds, knocking on the doors, it brought them all back together, talking at least, at least for a while about, hey, there's this, there's this new member of the family. So I thought that was kind of interesting. He, he passed away. He was a, a photographer for the Cleveland Pilots, and uh, I guess his, his plane crashed. And, um, you know, they lost their father just in an instant. And um, they kind of, as older teen girls, they just kind of spread out moved out on their own and didn't have a lot of contact. But once I knocked on my birth mother's door and had that meeting, I was actually singing with uh, the Madhavani Orchestra uh, that Christmas. And so um, that tour up and down the East Coast brought me through some very small towns in Ohio where it just so happened that three other aunts lived. So I took, I used the tour to go through and actually meet um, more members of my maternal family. They threw me a big dinner, and it was very nice. Um, again, we're all friends now, but um, it was, it was, it's kind of interesting how those elements just kind of fell into place. You know, lots of coincidences. So maybe there's some meaning behind it, but that's for wiser men to figure out, I guess. Wow. Well, what what an amazing origin story. I mean, it's very, uh, very moving and, and, and you know, and, and inspirational and whatnot. So you mentioned this orchestra, uh, which then leads me to I know that you have an amazing voice uh, and I'm not going to ask you to sing or anything, because if people want to hear some of your work, uh, you, you've got some very interesting projects. So would you what, what, first of all, what is this orchestra? It's, it's a traveling orchestra. And what kind of music is yeah, they they've been around for a number of years. Montavani um, was an um, he was a, a musical arranger. Um, uh, probably your parents, my parents, had a few of their uh, his albums um, in their under their Victrola. You know, it was um, his, his claim to fame was um, I forget, it, it was like uh, it was with heavy strings, um, kind of a, a continuum. Uh, kind of sound where it was like hard to detect the bowing of the violins. It was just like a continual bowing. The very lush strings um, was kind of the signature. And it was kind of a pop orchestra thing. So he would do, you know, arrangements of classical pieces. Uh, when we did this Christmas tour, it was mostly the orchestra playing their pieces, but um, maybe for four or five songs, there was an octet of singers, which I was a member of that would sing Christmas music with the orchestra. And it was a bus and hotel kind of thing where different town every night, you know, sleeping on the bus, you know, checking in, checking out, checking in, checking out, just three, three and a half weeks of continual moving up and down the coast. Um, but I did that for a few years. Um, usually happened every couple of years we'd have a tour. And I think I did that for three tours. Um, but it just so happened that 
they were going right through these little small towns in Ohio that I had relatives in. So it, it just magically all took place that one year where I met my my four uh, birth aunts and my birth mother on one fell swoop. Wow, amazing! And 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 you never then connected with your birth with your biological father. Is that? Yeah, I haven't connected with him. I, I know of him. I know who he is. I've connected okay. with his daughters because, you know, back in the day when I started searching, we didn't have these DNA tests. But uh, in the last few years, um, I had uh, submitted my my genetic profile to 23andMe, and I guess in 2018 I got a hit, and it was names that that I didn't recognize, names that. I didn't associate with my maternal side. So I was like, oh, well, maybe this is the answer I've been looking for on the paternal. And sure enough, um, it was uh, two half-sisters who were born from my birth father and another woman. Um, And out of respect for that other woman, um, he doesn't want to accept that I exist. So he was, I guess, engaged to her, the mother of my two half-sisters, at the mm-hmm. time that he came to Florida and um, had a relationship with my birth mother. So um, not wanting to blow up that situation, I, I don't identify who he is. But I, I am cordial with um, his daughters, and I never thought I would have two half-sisters. I, ironically, my birth mother, going back to her in Florida, after relinquishing me to adoption, she got married six months later and ended up adopting two children. <laughs> wow. So she has two children that aren't genetically hers, but that she adopted after sure. she moved. So that wow. compounds a lot of the emotions, I think, too. Sure, sure it does. Sure does. But it, it sounds obviously, you know, it, it, everything that happens brings us to where we are now. And uh, I'm sure, you know, you, you've gone over that. And it sounds like they were very, you know, inspirational and, and brought you up to, to, you know, to let you do what you're doing now, which it looks like this is something that you love. And uh, it sounds like they were maybe very encouraging when you were growing up and getting into, because it's not always easy to, uh, for parents to go like, yeah, of course you should be an actor, unless you know they're actors or or know the life. You know, I come from from an immigrant father, and it's kind of like even. And he he didn't he passed away, uh, maybe two thousand six, I think. So to to some somewhere somewhere around there. So he started to see a little bit of the success, but but not a not a lot of it. But I don't think even to the end he didn't really even get it. You know, it was it was just like, oh, you know. Uh, even when I went into business for myself, it, he wasn't very encouraging. So this is wonderful that they were able, you know, that you had supportive parents that, I don't know, allowed you or encouraged you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, encouraged you to uh, to do that. Yeah, very much so. I think that um, it's interesting. I mean, yes, they loved me very much. They were very encouraging. But I also think, and I think a lot of kids identify with this, um, I think the smothering aspect, the overprotective aspect, is also what drove me to stay after school. It is also what drove me to to kind of, you know, try to have 
a life outside my my bedroom, you know, where, you know, because I, I knew if I went home, it would just be reading comic books and riding my bicycle down the street and coming back. You know, it was I, I knew there was like a sheltered kind of environment waiting for me. So my my ability to actually thrive or 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 you know explore was really by staying at school after school and going into like a drama club or or some kind of a, a rehearsal process for a show. So yes, they supported, but they also kind of like drove me into a direction that that allowed me to become more independent. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it makes perfect sense. So this started in either either like grade school or middle school, and then went on to high school as far as the performing and and uh, and when did you decide that hey this is what I want to do? Um, I, I'd say probably in high school. I, I think I probably had a few epiphanies. Um, you know, the, I, I didn't go to to a performing arts high school. I just went to a regular public school. But luckily, each year they had a school musical. So the first two years. I kind of introduced myself to musical theater and, and played supporting roles. And my final two years, I ended up getting lead roles. And so I think experiencing that, that responsibility, that work ethic, um, you know, getting applause, realizing that, that my hard work could result in an experience and that that's a shared experience that, you know, other people rely on you, you rely on them, you know, just all of that at, at one time, at that young of an age, I think, I think it just, it built a lot of character in me that I then carried forward and decided, yes, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to major in musical theater, this is what I want to do. So, yeah, I, I would credit those years in high school. Wonderful, wonderful. And then, and you did then go to college in Florida, am I correct? And then, yeah, and then I major. Stayed in, I, stayed, I stayed in Boca Raton. I, I went to a JC in Palm Beach County for a little bit, but then uh, I popped over to uh, Florida Atlantic University. And while I was there learning, I also began working and, and getting my points towards my equity card and working in professional theater. So it was kind of like a, a learn to work and also, you know, learn while at work. You know, and, and then filter that back into my education as well. So um, it was a very nice um, kind of give and take uh, relationship. I was very tired, but but I did get through it, and um, you know, I, I I got my my equity card working dinner theater in Boca Raton. Um, you know, working these long, like four to five month contracts, and. Um, from there, I just carried that into working contract to contract in various theme parks and uh, regional uh, uh, theaters. I eventually moved to Orlando, actually, for the final five years that I was in Florida. And then um, in 1999, I popped over to California, and I've been here ever since. That's wonderful. We, we I think we showed up almost around the same time because I showed up in a little bit after you, maybe in like 2000. Uh, from Chicago, but w without that extensive and beautiful, you know, uh, musical theater history and and acting, uh, I, I came. Thank you, the, the world of improv, and 
you know what? Let me thank everyone that that's, uh, that popped in. Thank you guys for, for being here supporting. Uh, I know Deborah is a big uh, uh, person in. I don't know if you know Deborah Barsha, but if you don't, you guys should know each other. She's in New York, and and uh, she is uh, uh, in Tina Turner the the musical. And I'm probably not saying that correctly, but uh, she has a wonderful history in musical theater and in, in New York and whatnot. And and our friend Rocksteady from Australia and Woody and Goody. Thank you guys so much uh, for, for being here and spending some of your our Sunday, because I don't know even what, what day it is in Australia, or, or Saturday. It's probably Sunday already in Australia. So thanks, Rock. Thanks for being here and Deborah. Um, and, and of course, Woody and Goody. So um, so did you go out there with a gig to L.A.? or And did you do anything in Florida as far as, you know, for television or film? And they go like, yeah, okay. You know, what was the impetus then to move – to LA or was that just like the natural progression? You know, there, there are times in your life where you just coast and glide. And I was at a point in 99 where I was kind of just gliding and, um, I was married at the time and my, my ex-wife, then wife, uh, had, was working at, um, Walt Disney world and they promoted her to a job at Walt Disneyland. So the relocation package just picked us up and moved us out to California. And um, I was just of the opinion that I was going to be supportive and I would reinvent myself. I, I'd figure it out when it, once I got here. And that was a little bit pie in the sky, you know, because I got here and I none of my network was here. I didn't have that musical theater, you know, um, connection out here. And what I could see of the theater scene out here was it was mostly older celebrities from TV and film that were being asked to do a show. And that was mainly the kind of theater scene that I saw, at least from the surface, uh, when I first arrived. I'm like, well, there's nothing there for me right now. So I had to start doing the, the background work and just work my way into TV and film. And, you know, I could, because I was equity already, I could have joined SAG right away, sister union uh, rule. But I decided to wait. Uh, because we were still using Thomas guides back then, and I didn't know California. And I, if I'm being told to be in, you know, Sherman Oaks at 5 a.m. on Chelsea Circle, you know, there's 15 Chelsea Circles in my spiral-bound Thomas guide, you know. So I'm like, well, I'm going to stay non-union, make my 57 bucks uh, a day, um, and that way, if if I screw up and I I go to the wrong Chelsea Circle. It's not going to follow me. It's not going to be, it's not part of my professional life. So I did about six or seven months saying my dues until I, I kind of got the feeling that I kind of knew where I was going. And then I joined the union and I made, um, I made some inroads. I did a gig on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm and I thought things were going to take off. And unfortunately, I think when you think things are going to take off, they, they don't. And so I, um, I, I kind of went back into survival jobs for a while and flip-flopped for a few years. So from 2005 through about 2007 or eight, I was doing survival jobs. And, uh, and then I, I, I kind of got into the backside of the art. So I, uh, I, I worked in marketing for the Laguna Playhouse out here. And then I did some, work as a general manager for Long Beach Opera. So I could see more of the business side. And then that kind of inspired me to go out on my own and start my own theater company. 
um, the relevant stage, which ran in, in the San Pedro area from about 2008 through about 2011. Um, and then I moved to Long Beach and started another company with a partner there called Art and Relation, which ran up until just before the pandemic. And it was in about 2018 that I decided, well, I, I'm a little tired of producing and directing, and I think I'm going to go back to seeing what I can do as a performer. And I started booking a lot of commercials and, and steadily working in TV and film from throughout the pandemic, actually, which a lot of my friends were not doing. And um, for some reason, I was. And the self-tape thing I found very invigorating because I could audition you know, for several things in a day as opposed to just picking one thing to drive to you know, and spend my day waiting to audition. Um, so I kind of thrived through the pandemic. And it's gotten me to the point now where I feel like I've got a pipeline, I've got some momentum, and I'm just trying to keep building on that. So that's my long answer to your question about how I moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect answer. It's, that's wonderful. I mean, that, that's, that's part of your journey. And I remember the, the days of the Thomas. Back in my day, we, we needed a Thomas guide. Yeah, where right. where you know, same thing. I remember getting lost. Those we we went up to Agora Hills to watch a band play who may have been Sticks, I think. All right, and, but it was it was yes, and I, I'm almost sure it was if it was, it must have been Sticks, and it was. Uh, uh, like almost like dinner theater. It was at, at at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills. So it we I think we left like three hours early because I mean it was still it took us a while to get there, but we were there way too early. And it was just funny to to watch them performing and everyone's kind of sitting dinner theater style. And it was like watching these old rock stars go. But it was it was an it was an amazing show. We had a great show, but we were always getting lost. I remember once we were on the one hundred and one. And we took a wrong turn somewhere. We were still on the 101, but it wasn't where we, we weren't in Hollywood. I mean, it was just awful. And and of course, the driving around for auditions and the parking and the and the meters and the gas and and everything. That I mean, this that you know, the pandemic is the reason I really got back into acting. My, my businesses were closed in Vegas for what three four months, and being and then auditioning like this. I mean. You could be anywhere. So even even a few months ago, I asked my agent, I'm like, well, do I need to move to L.A.? They're like, no, not yet. You know, everything is still this. You know, when we need you, when you book something, you come to L.A. So, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's been it's been wonderful. <laughs> uh, it's very liberating. The thing with self-tapes now, though, is that I think casting directors and producers have gotten less patient and more demanding. You know, they... They want 30 seconds of this. They want a full view of that. They want you, you know, against a blank backdrop, and you have to have good lighting, and you have to have your costume on. And, you know, it's like they want all these things that you might not have given them had you just driven there and walked in for a taping, you know. So it, it puts a little more onus on the actor to keep up with the Joneses as well because, you know, the actor – who's submitting for the same role that's competing with you might have a nice, nicer backdrop, or they might have, you know, um, a better, a 4k camera, or, you know, they might have, you know, uh, beautiful costuming in their closet for the role that some obscure role, you know, so it, it, it's 
puts more pressure on us, I think, now that we've gotten used to self-vaping to, to up the quality of the ANSI. That is, uh, it's so true because, and, you, and you're right, it's almost, <laughs> I hope no casting director hears this, but they're almost hypocritical because when we go into their office, there's shit in the back wall, there's posters, you're in a room, uh, there's noise maybe in, in, behind the camera. And, and we're, you know, and we did it, they were fine, but now they're like, make sure, you, you know, blank back wall, they've got all these requirements, and, you, and now you have to be a, a director, a technical person, a editor, uh, you know, everything. So, so yeah. it, it's, it's not easier. And it wouldn't be so bad if they were all uniform, but every casting director, every producer has their own nuances, their own way of doing it. And then you have to upload these things. And if your Wi-Fi is misbehaving or, you know, you have a big file because they say they want you to do four takes of it and it's a three-minute scene and now you have a 12-minute video with a one-minute slate, you've got this 13-minute monstrosity that you're trying to upload, you know, it takes three hours to upload it. You know, it's, it's almost it's almost to the point where we're back to driving on the 101 and Mm-hmm. parking and going in and doing one audition a day as opposed to seven. So I hopefully there'll be some some balancing out as we move forward. But um, I, 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 I don't adhere to all the rules. Sometimes I just say, well, if you want this by, and, and also the deadline, you know, sometimes it's like the same day they want this self-tape in by. So it's like, well, I rarely got same day auditions. I at least could calendar it three or four days in advance. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, they want you to drop, you know, drop everything. And so sometimes, you know, I, I just, um, I, I cut corners and I, I, you want it in, this is what I'm going to give you here. I'm in my car. Here's, here's the audition here. I'm reading the sides, you know, and it's better to do that, I guess, than not to, than to miss it completely. So, and I book jobs from that, you know, they'll say, Oh yeah, we saw exactly what we needed to see. I'm like, well, okay, good. Thanks. And that's you know? what it should be about. It should be about the work, not if you're lit properly or if there is a poster in the background. It should absolutely 100% be about the work. And it can be deceiving because, you know, if I've got the ability to do this, you know, 10 times and then pick and choose the best one, you know, am I able to deliver that when I get to set? I mean, I'll bet that they've hired people that were amazing on tape. And then all of a sudden they get on set and they, and they can't, they can't carry their weight. Whereas when you're in the audition live, you can't hide that. They're like, okay, yeah, they brought it and they did great. Or, uh, no, we, you know, can you imagine if we have this person on set? No, thanks. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's so I think there's more competition because everyone can do it until I'm until I'm happy that I'm not going to send it, you know, so. We'll, yeah, I think we'll, it's become we'll, a little more a little more of a cattle call now, too. It's like everyone send us a self-tape. In. It's like rather than, OK, we only want these seven people to send us a self-tape because mm-hmm. we've ruled out the other 93 people. But now it's like. A hundred people. So it's like, OK, and then. What do they only watch the first five and they, they find the one they want and they don't watch the other ninety five because they got their tapes in a day later, you know. So right. it's it's a numbers game still. That's it. 
that's it. I mean, we, we, I feel like, you know, we can all do the job, but it's just, it's all, it always comes down to what, what are they looking for? So, uh, but I love that you worked on Curb. It's, you know, one of my favorite shows when, when I, I, I read into Jeff Garland before Curb came out. So it must've been, I must've gone back to Chicago and we were at the second city and I was in the cigar business. So I remember I gave him a few cigars and we were just smoking and he was like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to bring you in on, I got this show that we're doing. It's an improv show. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I remember I sent him my headshots. I think every time I see him, I'm like, you still got my headshot? He goes, yeah, I still got it. (laughs) Got it. Yeah. (laughs) Sit <laughs> right here. It's in the in the bathroom. I look at it every day. <laughs> I'm gonna send him some more. <laughs> but uh, so I so I've I've not done curb and, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh the show's over, and then all of a sudden, what? It's back again? But that's wonderful. I, I saw the old clip of you on curb and fantastic, man. And so appropriate being in theater and in playing what, a stage manager? Yeah, you know, I was I was booked on that actually as a featured extra and um, one of the ADs, second AD, came up to me and said, uh, we heard that you actually were a stage manager. I'm like, yes, yes, I, I am. Yes, I have. I have worked as a stage manager. And he said, well, uh, we have someone that wants to meet you and uh, talk to you about uh, something we're thinking about for the show. I'm like, okay. So he takes me, and then we go through the you know, back, backstage area, and then get to a trailer, knocks on the door. Larry David pops his head out of his trailer and says, uh, so I hear you're a stage manager. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Looks good to me. Bring him on. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I shook his hand and, uh, and, uh, you know, that was that they, they signed me to like three or four episodes, but really only that one scene that is one you probably saw is the one that actually made it because I think with a show like that, you know, it's, it's, it, they know where they're going, but it's not scripted. And I think the editor writes the show once they, once they get all the pieces together. So, uh, fortunately that piece that I was in, uh, made it in and other pieces I was in didn't. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was in episodes with David Schwimmer that I've never, I've never appear in. I got to meet Mel, um, uh, Mel Brooks and had a scene with him never appeared. But the premise was they had me acting as the stage manager for the producers, which was the show within the show for that season. Mm-hmm. Cause they were in rehearsal to do the producers. So yeah, it was nice to have a steady gig and I still got paid for it and I still get the royal, you know, the residuals, but uh, only one really good scene to show for it. But I, I thought at that point with all that work, and of course, you know, before something comes out, you're thinking, oh my God, I'm I'm all over this thing. I, when it comes out, I'm going to be, people are going to recognize me from the street, you know. And then only that one scene comes out. So that's why why I, where I go where where why I said I thought things were going to take off and they didn't, you know, because I think had I been in more footage, maybe I would have had more momentum and more to build on. But it was what it was, and it, it was great to have that experience. And were your lines uh, improvised? Pretty much everything that you did, where, where like it's my yeah. understanding, yeah, they give you a script with, we're, we're, you know, this is what your thing is. Here's Larry's thing, but now, yeah, just go ahead and improvise it. Yeah, the only scripted line I had was, "Okay, everybody, uh, we're back. Um, let's take it from the top." And then Larry David improvised to me, "Okay," uh, and now I say, and then and then the scripted line is, um, "You, Larry, you start from stage left," and then he. 
he improvised. Oh, is that my left or the audience left or what left? And then I just improvised back. It's your left right now. And so that was the piece that the big piece that got kept in that people do sometimes still recognize before. But um, but that was a it was a hybrid. And, you know, some of it was outlined and scripted, and some of it was just reacting to what you hear. You know, mm-hmm. improvising. Wonderful. And then saying, uh, saying yes. Yes. And it's all about saying yes. And yes. And it's our improv background. You know, I, I studied in Chicago at second city and improv Olympic. And I just interviewed uh, Susan messing, who was, uh, uh, who is an improv teacher in, from Chicago. And she was my level three teacher, I think back, back, you know, uh, back when I studied there back in the 1900s. And, uh, we had a great talk and chat and yeah, it's, it's about, uh, yeah, you agree and you keep going and you build these wonderful scenes. Uh, and you're hundred percent right. It's the show's written by the editor and it's, that's, uh, and I, I watched an interview and that's exactly what was discussed. You know, the same editor used to do, uh, other shows where it's basically n- not improvised and here's what we're doing. They know the lines and now you just edit it and put it together he was, you know, Curb was way different. It was about, you know, he was basically writing that story. And then, you know, Larry would have final approval, but you write the story. And, and so who knows where your, where your parts, <laughs> when they end up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah. It'd be nice but to you're on a DVD extra somewhere. But yeah, 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 it's true. It's, it's a, it's a moment in history. But yeah, it's, it's, it was it nice to do. Wonderful, wonderful. And so, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. I, I was just going to say, um, you know, from there, uh, that's what led to me going back to doing the survival jobs and, and then eventually working my way into musical theater again, producing, and then finally back into pushing my myself out there, getting a good manager, getting an agent, and um, and just plowing ahead. You know, uh, the the idea of taking baby steps every day, just doing incremental things, to just push things forward, knowing that every day I'm doing something. Um, and it, it just may be an iron in the fire that I forget about and that pays off two weeks, two months, two years down the road, but always doing a little something to push push things forward. I love it. That's such such you know great advice and you know words to live by. Um, and I've seen also some of your work in, in commercials. Yeah, yeah, a round of applause, everyone. And thank you, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for spending part of your Saturday with us. Uh, my guest, if you're just joining us or, or if you came in a little bit late, my guest is Ray Buffer, who's an actor, a singer, and um, what was the, what was the other thing that that, that I put on, on your? Found my light. <laughs> you spooky, found your light. It's a very spooky light now. <laughs> I don't know where do you leave off. Speaking of spooky, uh, you've played Frankenstein. A very uh, emotional was is the right word emotional a very uh, uh, yeah what uh, what was that for it was a commercial I, I take it or I've, I've done there are two roles that I seem to get booked on and it was with for different purposes and that's Frankenstein and Santa Claus so I guess one of these days I'll do a Franken Claus <laughs> I. Th- Yes. Yeah, yeah, you have to. Or a Santa Stein. I'm not sure. Yeah, but 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 yeah. 
Frankenstein. I did a I did a, a California walnut um, campaign um, where I was like a chef creating these uh, scientifically construed concoctions that are the antithesis of cooking with um, with natural walnut, which was the idea. You have a a real cook cooking with walnuts, and you have Frankenstein's creature cooking with chemicals. So they wanted to show the the comparison of the two having a cook-off. That was a nice little comedic thing I got to do. I think that's what you mean by he was emotional. Um, There's a a nice clip uh, out there that can be watched. But I also did a a portraiture um, doing the old um, Universal Studios Frankenstein makeup um, for an an exhibit that um, should be coming out in a few months. and the artist Anastasia, she um, she she's, she picked emotions and then uses like the mummy and Dracula and all of the universal monsters to represent these different um, emotions. So like Dracula represents gluttony, uh, Frankenstein's creature represents depression. So we did like a sitting uh, after three or four hours of prosthetic makeup uh, to do that and. I've also produced um, Frankenstein, a new musical, uh, on a couple occasions, both in Long Beach and in um, in Hollywood, uh, and I play the creature in those, and that's a, a singing, a serious singing Frankenstein, but beautiful, lush music. I actually discovered it uh, from a CD I bought at Barnes & Noble. Uh, it was an off-Broadway version of Frankenstein um, that existed and came out the same year that young Frankenstein was on Broadway. So it kind of got overshadowed because of that, I think. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful show. And actually, a friend of mine uh, may also be producing it as a concert version uh, later this year. And so I might reprise the creature role in concert version for that. But there's not a ton of makeup for that version. But for some reason, yeah, I get seen as as that uh, creature, which is fine. And then I do Santa. I do a lot of Santa work. Amazing, amazing. And and you you uh, you also do some singing eyebrow work. <laughs> I do. I just uh, got a nice juicy check for like a reissue for that because they uh, they filmed the PSA, the Red Cross, back in 2019, and then it was to promote a campaign that couldn't take place because we were in lockdown. So they just had to stick it on the shelf. And now two years later, they decided, okay, now we're going to do the campaign. And so they they pay you the money all over again, but you don't have to go refilm it. So that was nice. Uh, But yeah, I was singing eyebrow. I was singing eyebrow. The idea, premise is the guy is plucking his eyebrows, and he could be volunteering his time installing smoke alarms in people's homes. But, you know, how preoccupied we are with all minutia in our lives. And so... Singing eyebrows, basically telling him, "Hey, I'm going to grow back and be the same eyebrow you had." So, you know, encouraging him to go out and install free smoke alarms. Amazing! So, yeah, that was a fun. Game. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Where can people uh, uh, find you if you if you'd like to share that information? If they want to follow you on social media, or I know that your website is raybuffer.com. Find your light. Find yeah. your light. There it is. I'm finding you right. They can find me right here. Yeah, just Google Ray Buffer. Um, you can also go to raybuffer.com. I'm on Instagram as the real Ray Buffer. 
because there are a couple of not real ones pop up from time to time. I, I don't know. I don't think I've become that famous that, that anyone needs to, to create fake accounts, but for some reason I'm seeing them. So I am the real Ray Buffer. And um, yeah, IMDB or Facebook, just uh, type my name in the Google machine and magical things will happen. Amazing. Amazing. So that is wonderful. Uh, anything that you'd like to promote? Is there, is there something that you can talk about that you'd like uh, uh, some kind of call to action, if you will, if, that you're looking for people to, uh, to uh, support you with? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a few gigs on, on the uh, horizon. I'll be doing, uh, I'll be playing Judas in Godspell in a, a production for a friend um, for one weekend only in Buena Park, California, sometime in August. Um, so I'll be looking forward to doing that because that's a role I haven't done before. And it's been probably four years now since I've actually done some stage work. So it'll be nice to wet the whistle again. Um, Next week, I'm going back uh, to Melt Pictures to shoot a video game character named Rusty in State of Survival. Uh, we shot some footage before, but it couldn't be used, and so now they've asked me back, and I get to put on my biker gear and get a little fake beard going on and be all macho, so that'll that'll be fun. Other than that, um, you know, I, I attended a screening today for a student filmmaker uh, at USC uh, where I did a voiceover for uh, an animated bear. And I got to see some excellent filmmakers there at USC. Uh, uh, just really some remarkable work. So uh, I would just leave you with the idea that, you know, I'm typecast a lot as a big guy, but when I can take um, different kind of roles, um, even if it's by doing student films, I will do them because it gives me diversity also gives me exposure to the filmmakers of tomorrow and sure. and along those lines of baby steps those are those are irons in the fire that might pay off a couple years from now if i get a phone call saying hey you did my student film and now i'm a big budget director and i've got a role for you never know that is uh, an amazing and wonderful way to look at it because that, that that is true and they can use the help you know if it's it's something that they're just starting out their careers, but you're, you're right. I mean, these are the future filmmakers, producers, directors of, of the future. So I, I think, you know, planting the seeds now, uh, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. And hopefully then you get to work with them. And I hope that we get to work together someday because you, you are fascinating. Uh, you have such great range, uh, you know, cause I've seen you without your beard. I've seen you with your beard. Uh, you make a great cowboy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, let's give it up for, for Ray Buffer. <laughs> for so the very range. shy Ray Buffer. Completely uh, different now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you need I, to come out to LA. So when you do, I'll drive you down the 101 and, and drop you off somewhere. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I, I hope that maybe we can uh, share a beer. I I saw some of uh, you do. What do you do? Hot tub beer time or? I have a little hashtag, you know, I, there's no real purpose behind it. No one sponsors me per se yet, beer companies. Um, but yeah, I do like a hashtag raise hot tub beers. So the hot tub is my office. I do all my casting submissions from my phone while I'm in the hot tub and I will enjoy a different beer every day as, as, as much as I can. And 
throw a shout out to that brand and take a picture of myself enjoying it. You, you've, you're onto something there. You, you have something there. So, so that is such a great idea. And I, I hope that somebody picks up on you and, uh, and says like, Hey, we need this guy to, 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 to be one of our brand ambassadors. Maybe I should do a hot tub podcast. I think you should. I mean, I, I would consider doing it here on Fireside. I could join you. Uh, I mean, I have a community hot tub. I'm in a condo, so I, I could, uh, I don't know, waterproof my phone and and join you in a in a in a, some kind of hot tub conversations. I, I, you know, I'm even wearing a cigar shirt. I figured you're from wow. Florida. So there might be some has a little cigar pocket on the side. Uh, so maybe we can, we can have a cigar. And uh, I, I don't know if you smoke or not, but I can. We can have a cigar, share a cigar, and uh, and and some beer. What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite beer or? Do you, would you rather I, not? You know, it, it's going to be sad for me to say, but I actually enjoy Miller. There's an I saw that. Miller. Yeah, go and ahead. I agree. I mean, that's what that's you know what what really got me fascinated because I saw one that said uh, Miller High Life, which I, which is the champagne of beers. Yes, I actually uh, it was cheap and and I it has a nice peppery aftertaste that I can't I can't find anywhere else in any other beer and it, I actually went to an Oktoberfest with a friend um, in my early 20s and had a beer there that I just really enjoyed and I never could place what it was and I've been tasting all these beers ever since and I just and I go and have a run-in-the-mill Miller and I'm like there it is there's that it was a Miller draft I must have had at Oktoberfest and that's what I've been tasting ever since or seeking isn't that weird is there, is there a Miller beer and then a Miller High Life or is yeah, they, they they all share that same same aftertaste, whatever it is. I, I I don't know enough about beer making to say what causes the taste, but whether it's Miller, Miller Light, Miller Genuine Draft, Miller High Life, Miller anything, all of the Millers have this this thing at the very end that 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 none, no other beer that I found maybe Coors almost had it once, but but. Really, I haven't really found it in any other beer. I don't know what it is. It could just be some weird thing that only I taste that is some culmination of carbonation and the, my tongue. I, I have no idea what it is. It, it could be unique to me, but maybe some, maybe someone who's watching this and now or in the future will be able to tell us what, what that taste is. You know what? Uh, that should be our mission. Uh, I think we'll we'll need to do some hot tub talks, and and then try to get to the bottom of this mystery. Because now I'm salivating. I'm like, you know what? I could I could go for a beer. I, <laughs> so, well, yeah. Let's plan. Let's plan a, a a sequel, and we'll do the hot tub. I I smoked a cigar a few times. I'm not a big cigar person, but I would go out and buy one just for you. I Maybe you me uh, smoke it. You, you won't have to. I could always send you some Vato cigars because I, I make my own cigar. I have my own cigar brand. So we could uh, – but, yeah, you teach me a little bit about beer, and, and I'll teach you a little bit about cigars, and we'll have some great conversations. But, Ray, uh, if, if you have any final thoughts or final words, I'd love to hear them. I, but I really want to thank you for taking time from, from your, your schedule. My goodness, you pulled over in your car uh, to do this. So, so thank you, and uh, – we can we'd do a part two if you'd like, and you know we can keep people blessed. Thank you guys. Yeah, a round of applause uh, for, for Ray. Thank you guys, and, and for yourselves. Thank you. 
being here, Rocksteady, Kurt, Woody, Goody, Deborah Barsha, whom I, I really think you should connect with. Uh, I, uh, you know, she is uh, a musical theater goddess in New York, and uh, oh. and uh, and I, I think you guys have would probably have a lot to talk about. Uh, and that's a great thing about this platform, Fireside. The, the community is wonderful. It's somewhat curated, so it's not just anyone. It's not just open to anyone. And and uh, oh. content creators, uh, I would hope that you'd apply to be a content creator because you could do your show from here if it's once a week, once a month, you know, whatever it is, Ray. I, I think oh. you made a great addition to this community. Well, I mean, uh, no one's ever asked me to consider doing that before, so I think uh, I think you just you lit a fire. So I will I will look into it. I've lit a fire on Fireside. I think that that's appropriate. So, Ray, uh, any final thoughts, any final words? And uh, I know that people can find you at raybuffer.com. And, of course, just Google Ray Buffer if you want to connect with him and follow him on social media. And I'm at Paul Vato, paulvato.com or vato.tv or wide.at slash theater face, film camera, smirk, Crying, laughing emoji, which wow. that sounds ridiculous now that I said it. It's 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 better just go vato.tv. So that's why that thing's probably not going to work. Yeah, I don't I, I don't speak emoji yet. <laughs> I, but if you, of, you type those, you, you really, will. Talk. It's really hieroglyphics, right? We're just basically digressing to to Egyptian times now with emojis. That is a hundred percent right. We, we've got we've gone back to where we started. We've gotten rid of the alphabet and now it's like you can find me at at uh, at these emojis you type those in and there's paulvato.com so uh yes i'm sorry to interrupt ray any final words or thoughts and if not then thank you so much for being here no just thank you for having me it was a pleasure to get to know you and i i look forward to uh getting to know you better thank you and likewise and folks thank you guys how about a round of applause for mr ray buffer thank you so much Find your light, Ray. Find your light. There it is. I'm going to invite the Oh, it's so You can't look right into the sun. Bad. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. Ray. You're very welcome. Hold another bottle. Look a little closer. Cigar in Moscato. An actor in improv. Coming from Chicago. Outdoor. Make way for Paul Vato.